and welcome to this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You with me, Liz Tucker, the podcast that produces medical journalism, not PR. I hope my show will be of interest to both doctors and patients, because of course, doctors are patients themselves too. This podcast reveals stories from the world of medicine that others don't, won't, or only very partially report. And that means I'll be exploring not just the science, but also the politics and money behind it. This week, in the second half of his interview, I'm joined by Professor Carol Sikora, one of the world's leading cancer experts, who reveals why the UK does poorly for some very common cancers, what he believes needs to change to prevent this, and the catastrophic impact that COVID has had on the UK's cancer services, which led to palliative care being halted and means today many patients are presenting with later stage cancers, which are far harder to treat. Carol argues that we will see the tragic results of this in higher cancer death tolls in years to come. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to say a big thanks to listeners who've made such kind comments about the podcast. Dr. Mahindra Patel called it just brilliant. Danika Ravel said it was bloody awesome. And Harriet Walt called it outstanding journalism. It makes a huge difference to receive comments like this. So thank you so much. And for a new podcast like mine, if you've enjoyed the pod, it really helps its visibility on the podcast platforms if you can leave a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. And we now have a mailing list for the podcast too. So if you'd like to be the first to find out when a new podcast is published, you can sign up at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, where you can also find out more about the podcast. So now back to the interview with Carol. Professor Carol Sikora has been a consultant oncologist for 44 years and is also a past director of the WHO Cancer Programme. He worked in the UK's NHS for over 35 years and until recently was the chief medical officer of Rutherford Health, a private company providing proton beam therapy centres. Carol has been an outspoken voice about the need for NHS reform and that's where we pick up the interview this week. I started off by asking him why the debate around the NHS so quickly becomes politically charged. Uh, you know, I'm a bit of a heretic, as you probably know about the NHS. I called it the last bastion of communism in Europe. Um, the NHS is a wonderful system, but so are all European healthcare systems, and they're all universal. They all provide free care, even to poor people that can't afford insurance and so on. The insurance is provided for them. Um, we, we, we've sort of been in love with the NHS because it's free, but it's not free, of course. It's costing us a lot, and it's enormously bureaucratic. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, one of the hospitals I work at, I won't say, well, they even have a manager for pillows, a pillow manager that check because the pillows go missing. And so his job is to, it's a he, has to go and check out where the pillows are, follow them on his computer program around the hospital. This is just craziness. What happened to the ward sister? Can't she have a stack of pillows somewhere in a cupboard and make sure they're not uh, disbanded around the place? But it, it is a great system, but uh, it does need reform and not not more money, just proper reform. And I think that's a challenge for the politicians. It's too political uh, all the time. Because I think for the Tories, if they touch it, they're seen as privatising the NHS. And the Labour Party, because they were responsible for the birth of the NHS, for different political reasons, they can't touch it either. 
Exactly. No one can touch it. It's untouchable. And any criticism, uh, you know, I felt I was going to be burnt at the stake as a heretic when I said that uh, five years ago, uh, that you're not allowed to have bad thoughts about it. I think also the role of the doctor has been devalued within the system a lot recently, I mean, the last 10 years. In fact, if you look at how we measure up to other Western European systems, such as France and Germany for cancer care, we don't actually necessarily measure up that well. No, with cancer care, and I've lobbied it for this right from uh, for, since I've been a consultant. The problem is that when you look at European comparisons of cancer outcomes, we do worse for some of the common cancers. We do well for rare cancers, testicular cancer, lymphoma, leukemia, uh, complex malignancies. We do extremely well. There's nothing wrong with our cancer treatment. What it is, is access to early diagnosis is different here than the rest of Europe. It's better than it was 20 years ago, but it's still far behind France, Germany, Switzerland, and so on. And that means that we have later stage presentation. The reason for it is, first of all, patients here are pretty stoic, especially men. They don't do much about sort of a bit of blood in the uh, vomit or a bit of blood in the, in the urine. They don't do anything about it for weeks. They get nagged by their wives. Eventually, they go. Getting a GP appointment is challenging. And when you get the appointment, you, you may have to go back again in another six weeks before anything's done. I was on the committee that made the two-week wait for cancer. Uh, that was in the year 2000. And uh, it was a pragmatic way to try and speed up p- patients whose GP thought they might have cancer. And it probably has saved some lives. But unfortunately, only 25% of cancer patients go through that. The rest go through the slow track. And just like Heathrow, if you have a fast track, the slow track goes slower than it was before you start the fast track. So uh, it, it's impossible for anybody, however good the GP, to sift between those that have and don't have cancer. You have to do something, an endoscopy, a biopsy, a CT scan, a chest X-ray. You have to do some investigation to make that determination. And we're just so slow at it. What takes three months in Britain takes a week in France. And that's that's the difference. There are these pockets of excellence across the country. And really, it's trying to find the right pocket of excellence for your particular cancer. Exactly. And also to have time to treat you properly. I remember I did a locum just when I was first a consultant and I had to do this clinic. And I arrived at nine o'clock and it finished at one. It had to finish sharply at one because of the dermatology clinic then. And I was the only doctor in the clinic. I got there. It was like a uh, a busy railway station in there. And I said, what am I going to do? They all come at nine o'clock. Yeah, they'll be there till you see them. I said, well, I can never see all these people by one o'clock. And the reception said, don't panic. I'll get you through this. And she was great. She just got everybody moving along and it actually worked like a dream. But she was very good at her job and could see who needed longer, who needed shorter. And she'd chivy everybody. And at one o'clock, I can't, I can't say I was relaxed at the end of it, but uh, and that is not the place to go if you want a second opinion for uh, a complicated cancer. You need to go somewhere which specialises in a single disease. I think there's been a thought that if you're a private patient, yes, you can get to see the doctor faster, but basically the treatment is the same. But in fact, that may not be the case. There may be other surgical options open to you. There's certainly other forms of radiotherapy, and there may also be other forms of chemotherapy. That's right. That's the attraction. It's not just seeing the same consultant and getting longer time with the consultant, but you also have access to more chance of getting other treatments that may not be available to all NHS patients. Ironically, you know, in, in certain in poorer parts of the country, uh, you might get very good quality of care. It, it doesn't follow. Um, I mean, I was always surprised that when IMRT 
IMRT was introduced, Ipswich uh, was the top centre for IMRT in, in around 2006. And Carol, just to be clear, IMRT stands for Intensity Modulated Radiotherapy, which provides a very precise form of radiotherapy. Yeah. And when you looked into the reasons, it was a single physicist that was absolutely besotted with IMRT and wanted to make sure everybody could have it. The other thing about Ipswich, there were six consultants and they didn't do any peripheral clinics. They never left the the hospital at Ipswich. And so they were all able to, together as a group with the physicists, design a way of delivering it within the NHS at no greater cost than ordinary radiotherapy. These people got it together. But are you saying because it was a poor area, therefore those consultants weren't doing so much private work? That's that's the case. They weren't doing much private work. They were in the hospital, and they were all enthusiastic. So, um, and it and it worked. And the physicists went on to open a new centre at Peterborough, which had hundred percent IMRT when they did that. So, uh, it's an amazing story. The great brand names of medicine, the cathedrals of medicine, are not necessarily the best. All the great teaching hospitals used to be the pinnacle of success. And when you're asked what you want to do when you grow up, you say, I want to be a London teaching hospital consultant. That's what people would say. But that's not necessarily the current thing. And uh, introducing new technology and innovation is struggling, uh, especially in our system, which is sort of difficult to get funding for the new without, unless you're going to save money on the old. It would be incredibly explosive. But has anyone ever done any research to look at different outcomes between private patients and NHS patients for cancer treatment? They haven't. Uh, One of the problems in doing that, you're right, you'd expect the private patients would do better. And I suspect they do if you compare like for like. The difficulty is just that, how you compare like for like. So we know there's very good data from cancer registries around Britain that people from social class five compared to social class one have a much poorer outcome. And the reasons are complex. And the health service is free. So why is it that people from lower social classes, lower socioeconomic groupings, ethnic minorities have poorer results. And it's something to do with the use of a complex system that's not essentially very patient-friendly. Health service is not easy for everybody. And I think that's part of the problem. So to go back to your point, I think private patients, like for like, in terms of socioeconomic distribution, educational level, they would probably do a bit better in private than they would in health service. But overall, the biggest down factor of the health the NHS patient is they don't get enough time and enough access to discuss the possibilities. And I suppose also, if you were comparing like for like with private patients, if they have non-specific problems, which turn out to be cancer, yeah, because they're not waiting so long, they're likely to be diagnosed faster, which as we know, is very important. Yeah. Uh, and we know that uh, socioeconomic higher level patients have cancer diagnosed at an earlier stage all the time, right across the board, all cancers, even paediatric cancers, which is you know, because parents are the ones that are bringing the children. Uh, people access to general practice here is a struggle at the moment, as we all know. 111 is the NHS one, which is good service, but it's very bad at diagnosing cancer because you need to see and feel and examine and look. Uh, You can't do it online yet. And maybe one day we will be able to. And is there anything we can do to control the increasing cost of chemotherapy? We know that medical technology drugs always rise faster than the rate of inflation, but the costs do seem to be becoming astronomical. 
they are. I mean, there are two drugs for melanoma that are often given together, the immunotherapies, nivolumab and ipilimumab. In between them, they cost £240,000 a year to give, and plus the administration costs, plus the side effects costs. So we're talking about 300 k on average for a single patient. That's sort of unaffordable. Melanoma, metastatic melanoma is relatively rare, but imagine if it was breast cancer or lung cancer and we were trying to do that. And of course, the manufacturers want you to do that. They do also sorts of trial. We've got to do something about drug costs because they're way out of line with everything else we do in medicine. Even a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant costs about £100,000. So these drugs are more than even the most costly procedure we do in medicine. And with the pressure of COVID on the NHS, what impact has that had on cancer treatment? Because the system hasn't got inbuilt resilience like many of the European systems, it really collapsed with cancer. So cancer screening stopped completely, but actually cancer diagnosis stopped. So the two-week wait program, which, uh, as I said, I was involved in creating 20 to 22 years ago, um, collapsed too. So normally you'd expect 95% of patients booked for two-week wait to be seen within two weeks. It dropped to 40% at the peak of COVID. And it was just there were no clinical spaces. The clinics for the scanning systems broke down because they had so many COVID patients to scan. And the endoscopy and biopsy services stopped because there were aerosol generating procedures, which meant that you couldn't do them without full COVID protection, PPE and so on. So instead of doing 15 endoscopies in a morning, you could only do four. And that really slowed everything down, ground to a halt, basically. Do you think in a few years' time, We'll see the implications of that treatment. Exactly. Or rather the lack of that cancer treatment. And, and we'll see the mortality in, in about five years' time. You'll see a, an increase in mortality. And, uh, but it takes time to go through the system. It, it's not like COVID. The, the deaths from COVID came month by month. You could see where there was an above-average death rate because of COVID. And, and it's stuck. It's, it's like frozen in the epidemiology of cancer. You can never get it back now. So patients with what normally present with stage one cancer, 90% survival, the common cancers, will have stage three cancer with 20% survival. So there'll be a mortality figure associated with that. And yet for many people, particularly those in younger age groups, we now know the mortality for COVID wasn't actually that high. Yeah, and uh, it was in very old people. So we published a paper looking at the life years lost. If you forget the numbers, but look at life years lost, it's much more frightening. With the cancer, the average age is in people in their 60s. Um, with COVID, the average age of mortality was people in their 80s, 82.4. The number of life years lost, if you're 82.4, is almost zero because that's your longe- normal longevity. The life years lost from cancer is 15, 20, 30 years. So uh, that's been the problem with it all. So when we analyze the whole thing in 2028 or something like that, look back on it, you'll see that cancer has been much more severe. Cancer, heart attacks and, and strokes have been more severely affected than the others because these are the three things. If you don't treat them at the time, you lose, you can't go back to treating them. So people weren't stented, they weren't given um, admissions for coronary artery ischemia and so on. So uh, it will affect the future of mortality. And as you could see this medical disaster unfolding, were you in touch with the relevant government departments? Yeah. Saying, you know, you really need to think again. 
I even set up a Twitter account. I'd never, I didn't know what Twitter was. I could just about do it just to get the message home that if we don't do something, a lot of cancer patients are going to die. But, you know, they even took oncologists off to put them on the intensive care units in certain parts of the country. So there was no oncologist service. I was amazed how poor NHS England handled the whole thing. They were just accepted. There would be no cancer treatment. You just have to live with it and we'd have to ration it and we'd have to take all the patients having palliative chemo therapy would have to stop. It seemed unnecessary. It was barbaric. And instead of giving a fractionated radiotherapy, we're urged to use single fractions or low, low numbers of fractions to speed things up to reduce demand. And of course, the other problem was staff. I mean, radiotherapy is quite staff intensive. So is chemotherapy with chemotherapy nurses. Uh, if you haven't got the staff because they've got to stay off because they've been infected, even though they're perfectly well, uh, you're stuck. And then the PPE. And the other thing that was interesting in the public sector, they never bothered with any temperature screening or any form of screening. In the private sector, they did. So you, not only you had to wear a mask, you had your temperature taken as you went in. You weren't allowed in if you had a temperature above 35, 37.5. That seems a pretty simple way of dealing with the situation. But uh, anybody could walk around NHS cancer departments, just even if you weren't meant to be there, you could just walk in with almost no security in most of the hospitals. But when you pointed out to these government departments that not just a few lives, yeah, but many thousands of lives were going to be lost, what was the reaction? The reaction was, what can we do about it? We have to treat COVID. So when you said thousands of people will die, what was the response? I spoke to a group of MPs in the House of Commons, and they agreed. And uh, they said, well, of course, they were favourable ones. They were sort of against the huge turnaround of the NHS towards COVID. Uh, But the minister said, what can we do? We have to treat these patients. Pointed out, over a five-year period, you're going to kill more people doing this than with other diseases. And it's not who's more deserving or not. It's not that sort of argument. It's just simply, you just look at the numbers, better to carry on with all cancer treatments than to spend all your money and time on, on COVID. Politicians don't really get into this and the hospital management doesn't get into it either. Everyone was frightened and, you know, we banged our spoons for the COVID service every Thursday night and uh, it was frightening to see what happened. So it was a question basically of dealing with what was most immediate rather than what was most urgent. That's exactly right. So, Carol, if I make you health secretary tomorrow... <laughs> yeah. You've got complete power over the NHS. What do we have to do to get up to Western European cancer care standards? Okay. So the first thing you need to do is to get early diagnosis. And the way to do that is to bypass the GPs. There's no other way. We can't do it through the current GP service unless it suddenly dramatically improves. And it won't because there aren't enough people. GPs over 60 are retiring in their droves. And so the only way is to convince NHS 111 to empower them to have separate algorithms for cancer diagnosis and to be able to request endoscopies, CT scans, MR scans, blood tests. It wouldn't take much to do that. Sure, you'd increase the demand for tests, but and some of them would not be necessary, but at least that way it would be a much safer system. But that would still be difficult for non-Pacific things, like my example of a stomachache. 
Yeah, well, except they could have an algorithm for stomachache and they could eventually uh, get you an endoscopy, an upper endoscopy, or they could get you a, a CT scan of the abdomen. So, uh, and I think that's the only way we're going to get this. So you could say, well, let's get the GP's authorization to do just that. Well, the trauma is no one can get to see the GP's, so it doesn't help. If you could, there wouldn't be an NHS 111. 20 years ago, that was how you did it. You went to your GP. The other way is to have physician associates nurses trained to make diagnoses. And that's another possibility to have not just clinical nurse specialists in breast cancer or lung cancer and so on, which we do, but also have diagnostic nurse specialists that take people from 111 and make sure they're triaged. I mean, making a cancer diagnosis is like having a load of balls going into a funnel and the red balls and green balls. Most have got green balls, but you want to pick out the red balls. And as they go through the funnel, you make tests and you make the algorithm, the clinical pathway, whatever we want to call it, and out come the red balls and they go off to have... um, full diagnosis workup and then treatment. And that would speed up the early diagnosis. There's nothing wrong with the doctors. There's nothing wrong with the training of oncologists in this country, whether radiotherapy or medical oncology. What's wrong is the system is too clunky. How you interact with the NHS and how you change things. You don't want to go next Tuesday for your follow-up? Fine, just flick on here and you'll get it for a week on Tuesday and everyone's happy. You don't have to, the computer can do it all. And we don't have that at all. There's no way you can make appointments or change them on the NHS by computer from home. But we know that we have these pockets of excellence within the NHS, which are world class. Yes. So as a patient, I either need to be able to access those centres of excellence or we need to create a system where other hospitals come up to those same standards. Or we have networks of hospitals, hub and spoke models. So that's, that's probably the way forward. We've tried it with cancer, but it's not, not there yet. The idea is that instead of having 61 places that are designated as cancer centers, you have only 20, but they have the other ones come feed into them. So the protocols are the same central thing like PET CT. You only have one in the center because that's something you may need only once or twice during your journey. So patients can travel for that. You know, it'd be wasteful to have it right around the, the, the spokes. So in that way, you have a system that works, then the spokes, you have central protocols for rare diseases. So you agree on management of say sarcomas or something, and you always have the standard treatment. Big problem in medicine is variability. All industrial processes to get rid of variability, they have very good quality control to get rid of variability. We don't in the health service, we don't in medicine. Different doctors are still doing different things, and we've got to get rid of that. Sure, you're allowed a bit of clinical freedom, adapting to the patient's wishes and so on, but the basic clinical pathway should be the same everywhere. And for that, we need good IT. But I suppose if we move towards more individualised care and genomics become more important, if we have the same guidelines for, say, all breast cancer patients, actually, as we discover more about patient genomics, we may need to alter treatment depending on a patient's genetic makeup. Absolutely. So personalised medicine is the extreme of of variability because everyone's getting a different recipe. But, you know, you have the the protocols the same. It's just the the, the variants are determined by genomics, by patient preference and by the way in which the system adapts to it. So I think it's all doable in the future. So it's organisational, not financial, as far as you're concerned. Exactly. It's organisation and information technology. You can measure what you're doing very well. Thank you very much, Carol, for sparing the time to talk today. 
Okay, Liz. Well, that was fun. You've exhausted. I'm going to have to make another coffee. (laughs) Really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Liz. Bye. So hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. A reminder, you can sign up for the mailing list and find out more about my podcast at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Sign up for my Substack newsletter at liztucker.substack.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. Putting together a podcast like this requires a lot of work and resources, financial and otherwise. So if in the coming weeks you feel able to support the pod, I'd really appreciate it. You can sign up for a monthly subscription on patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or make a payment with PayPal via my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Next week, I'm talking to Dr. Jason Fung in Canada, a kidney consultant and expert in the developing field of fasting. He discusses how his views on treating diabetes changed following a published trial that showed those diabetic patients on intensive drug regimes actually did worse. So Jason reveals how fasting and low-carb diets can not only treat type 2 diabetes, they can also prevent it becoming a progressive disease. And we find out how fasting and low-carb diets can also be highly effective for drug-resistant epilepsy. And the emerging data that suggests that this approach may also be useful in helping to treat other neurological conditions such as Alzheimer's or Huntington's. So do please join me again next week to find out more. And many thanks for listening. Bye for now.